If you brought a copy of Scripture with you this morning, you can find the little book of Philemon. It's right in front of the book of Hebrews in your New Testaments. And a very happy Mother's Day to all of you mothers, as Pastor Brad has already mentioned, but I want to say that as well to you. I know that Mother's Day conjures up all kinds of emotions uh, for some of you. Your mothers are your dearest friends. Uh, maybe your mother is gone. Maybe this is more like a Memorial Day uh, for some of you. That certainly would be true of me as I memorialize my own mother and my first wife and the mother of my, uh, of my flesh and blood children uh, who have now gone on. But I'm, it's not like I'm motherless. Uh, I have 10 mothers that I honor this morning in my family, okay? The, the, uh, my wife and all of my daughters and daughters-in-laws, and it's the uh, greatest joy of my heart that every one of these are passionate followers of Jesus. And uh, that's a grace, that's a gift, and I know it, and I'm very, very humbled uh, by that. So just a joy to be able to rejoice with them today on this uh, Mother's Day. And you know, if you are uh, thinking about our, our sermon series, the short one albeit, is on friendship. Uh, there is a mother-daughter, actually more like a mother-in-law, daughter-in-law relationship in the Bible uh, you might be familiar with, Ruth and Naomi. Remember that story in the Old Testament? Very, very close. You have a mother who suffered great sorrow and a daughter-in-law who suffered great, made, rather, made great sacrifices. Uh, both of them were greatly rewarded. And here would be my prayer over all of you moms here today on this year day, that the Lord would comfort those of you who have suffered great losses and that he would reward those of you who have made great sacrifices. And that might be the same person, just the same. But uh, so now we continue in our series on Philemon and we're picking it up in verse eight. But before we go there, I gotta tell you, I, I was, as I was meditating on this and thinking about this uh, series, an image came into my mind. I've been to Israel three times, and if you've ever been to Israel and you've been to En Gedi, that's, uh, the, it's a desert down by the Dead Sea. It's an oasis. It's where David hid from Saul for 10 years. Still there, pretty much exactly as it was back in those days. Fascinating to go there. You see the deer that, G, that David talked about. As the deer pants after the water brook, so my soul pants after thee. But the deer were called ibex. The ibex uh, is, doesn't look like the Iowa deer, okay? They got these big old horns. Let me tell you something. They can scale vertically right up a wall. They are a freak of nature to watch. Amazing. I mean, there's YouTubes. Don't YouTube them now. Just, you know, hold it if you would, please. But they are fascinating to watch. And as I was thinking about this, I thought of a story that I'd read uh, years ago about the, uh, this observer who was on the other side of a mountain watching two male mountain goats coming along an impass, a pass and heading right toward one another on the same ledge with an incredible precipice, hundreds of feet below. If, if they, two male goats coming up against each other, not a good thing. Something was going to have to give. They literally came face to face with one another. Barely anything to hang on. They couldn't back. Neither one could back up. And so he just watched them as they stared one another down. And then something outstanding and astounding took place. Instinctively, one of those goats laid down flat, and the other walked right across him. He stood up. They both went their separate ways. Now remember that, because I'll come back to it. 
Every once in a while in our friendships, we face off. And friendships get tested. And when they are tested, that's when we discover the depth or the shallowness of those friendships. I once had uh, one of those moments, a face-off, so to speak. By the way, I haven't always succeeded in these things. Uh, I've had many, many times where my friendships were tested and only to have to confess some sin, get it right, and then only to have those friendships buttressed and better than ever before. But it doesn't always work that way. And I wonder if any of you have ever lost a friend in the process. I had one of those moments with a so-called friend. I guess he was a friend. Uh, we'd reached an impasse, and uh, I went to him. I acknowledged my culpability in the matter, my sin, asked for forgiveness. And truth to tell, I was hoping he would do the same. But he didn't. In fact, he doubled down on his innocence. And in that moment, I just felt the friendship die. It was very, very sad. To say the very least, we didn't pass the genuine friendship test, so to speak. Now, one of the most overlooked friendships in the New Testament is that of the Apostle Paul and Philemon. They, we have no record of them hanging out, but we do have the record right in front of us of a friendship that was centered on the gospel, on spiritual fatherhood, on brotherly love, and a set of providential circumstances only God himself could have worked out. And a much lesser friendship would have been shredded as a result of what took place between the two of them. But in fact, it wasn't because it was a real friendship. And I just want to share a couple of thoughts. These aren't random, but you know, when you study for passages, you only get to preach for a half hour, so you get, a lot of them get jettisoned. I'm just throwing them in there for you today, okay? I'm going to give you a couple. I want you, these, these are some thoughts from this last week. Here's one of them. Friendship, watch this, that lacks mutual humility is a pretty shallow friendship. Friendship that lacks mutual humility is a pretty shallow friendship. And then this, teachableness is a sign of humility. Would you agree with that? And humility is the avenue of grace. We know that because James says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And I don't know about you, but I could use all the grace he's got to give me. Remember that. The Apostle Paul has softened Philemon. If you remember, Philemon lives in Colossae, where we get the Church of Colossians, the book of Colossians. He's, in, he's a wealthy slave owner, and his, his slave is Onesimus. And Onesimus is robbed from him and taken off. Paul has, is writing Philemon because in, this, in the providence of God, Paul's over in Rome. Philemon runs from Colossae to Rome. He tries to get lost in the masses, runs into Paul providentially. We don't know how, but he did, and he's converted to Christ. Paul is sending him back. He softened Philemon in the first seven verses, which we saw last week, with some opening words, which are just very powerful. Remember, he says at the end of verse seven, he says, Philemon, you have refreshed the hearts of the saints. And we said that word refresh means, is a word for intermission. You've given intermission. You've given rest, temporary rest from the labor. Uh, that's a great compliment, by the way. And now he's going to make his pitch, okay? Uh, now, you need to know that when this letter arrived to Philemon, it wouldn't have arrived just with Philemon. It would have arrived with two letters. 
Ona Paul's in prison in Rome. He sends Onesimus, who's been converted, back to his owner in Colossae. And now, he goes with another guy called Tychicus, who is a, another faithful guy. We'll see him here in a second. They both show up with not one letter, but two. The, the letter to Philemon, the personal letter, and the letter to the Colossians. They would have had them both. And I want you to remember that because when you read the book of Colossians, you'll come across this. Watch this. Uh, Tychicus, pronounce it, what a, what a name, anyway. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother, faithful minister, fellow servant in the Lord. Lots of adjectives. I've sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and, and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him is Onesimus, Philemon's slave, the runaway. Our faithful and beloved brother, who's one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place. Now, I've isolated the phrase after Onesimus. Notice he's called, who is one of you? Now, from a surfacey perspective, you may, well, he's from Colossae, but he's writing to the church. And the church at Colossae would have thought, Onesimus is, well, that's Philemon's slave. No, Paul says he's one of you. So he's already hinting at this. So with that in mind, the text itself, beginning in verse 8. Accordingly, Paul writes to Philemon, the slave owner, though I'm bold enough to, in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, remember that, I prefer to appeal, it's a beautiful word, parakaleo, appeal to you, I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner, also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. And if you were with us, we told you Onesimus's name means useful. He's saying he didn't live up to his name. Now he does. A little play on words. I'm sending him, verse 12, back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment in the gospel, hint, hint. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. Now, we didn't read the entire epistle, but if you did, you'd see that guided by the Spirit of God, the Apostle Paul presents a, a number of striking contrasts that really amplify the grace of God in Paul's life, in Philemon's life, as well as Onesimus's. Did you catch some of those contrasts? We just alluded to a few of them just now. Here they are. Command versus appeal. Here's another one. Useless versus useful. And another. Forced versus voluntary. One more. Parted for a while, back forever. And yet another, slave versus brother. You wronged me? He wronged you, brother? Charge me. Lots of contrast. Now, again, setting the, the frame here. Paul is in Rome. He's in prison. Philemon is a wealthy slave owner living in Colossae. His slave is Onesimus. Onesimus has stolen from him. We don't know what, but it was a significant amount. And bugs out, goes to Rome, where there are upwards to a million people living to get lost in the masses. 
Rome had 60 million slaves, uh, uh, 40% of the empire built on slavery. So he gets lost in the masses, and in the providence of God meets Paul, is converted to Jesus Christ. But he's a fugitive. And remember, fugitives were often branded with the, with the letter F on their forehead for fugitivists. That's the way they would always be looked upon the rest of their life if they were found. Now Paul, as I said, is making his pitch. He's softened up Philemon, not disingenuously. He's talking about his great love for Philemon. And now he, sa- he sends Onesimus, who's been converted, back with Tychicus. He comes, sends him back with him, and they're together, standing right there as Onesimus is, is reading the letter. I mean, he's got the brand in the fire. It's getting red, ready to brand this dude. But he reads the letter, and he's beside himself. It's like, wait, Paul, you ran across. You, you met Onesimus? Wait, he's your child? Wait, you fathered him? Wait a minute. You fathered me. Wait, it, I'm supposed to receive him, not as my slave, but as my brother? Imagine the humility it would have taken for Philemon, not just to read this letter, but to do so right in front of Onesimus and to respond as Paul expects him to respond. But of course, everything changes when you're in Christ, amen? Right? If anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things have become And so it was with Onesimus. He's not just a slave. He's the brother of his owner. It's like a young man. Imagine this young man in his 20s, a complete reprobate, even from a societal perspective. He's into drugs. He's a thief. He finds out his dad has died, gets word that his dad has died, so he's told to go down to the morgue, which he does dutifully, goes down to the morgue, and to get his to get uh, the clothing that his dad has, he, r- he rifles through the clothing, finds his dad's billfold, opens it up, extracts $300, which was supposed to go to his mom, pockets it, throws the billfold down, and leaves. What would you call a guy like that? Well, that very guy showed up at this church four years ago and stood at that door right there, trembling before me. Just absolutely trembling after hearing the gospel. I preached the gospel again to him, and he was converted right there in the spot. God changed his entire life. He gave the money back to his mom. He's interning with us this summer, Michael Adrian. The gospel changes everything and everybody and relationships and friendships. And so it was with Onesimus, and we are talking about genuine friendships that are built on the gospel itself. You'll pass the test of genuine friendship when the foundation of the friendship is love. When the foundation of the friendship is love. Did you notice in verse 8, Paul says, I could command you to do this because I'm, you know, (laughs) I'm an apostle. (laughs) But instead, he says, look at verse 9, For love's sake, do you see that? For love's sake, I'm making an appeal to you. This is really interesting to me. He doesn't qualify the word love. He doesn't say for the love of Christ's sake. He doesn't say for the love of God's sake. He doesn't say for the love of the brethren's sake. He doesn't say for the love of church's sake. He doesn't say for the love of one another's sake. He just says for love's sake. He's, He's actually appealing to the nature of love itself. 
And if you want to know the nature of God's love, you have to read the love chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, right? Don't go there now, but make a mark of it. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, in verses like 4 through 7, there are no less than 15 characteristics of love. What makes it doubly interesting to me is eight of them are negative. Love is not, love is not, love is not. Seven of them are positive, love is. In heaven, we'll never have to hear love is not, love is not, love is not, because we'll have no proclivity, no inclination, no leaning toward being unloving. But it speaks to our sin natures, doesn't it, to be unloving? And it's in that context. One of the prohibitions on love is love does not keep a record of wrongs. Have you ever read that? Yeah. Every marriage needs to remember that. Amen. Right? And friendships. In fact, it was, remember the friend I talked about earlier? It was at this very point, the record of wrongs that will kill a marriage, that I felt the death of the friendship because my friend pulled up wrongs that went back years just to tell me, just to demonstrate to me this wasn't built on love. Biblical love ignores past offenses, social stigmas, including race and status. That's what makes the church so beautiful. When black and white, Asian, Latino, European, factory, business, office, self-employed, unemployed, all sitting next to one another and breaking the same bread. The foundation of friendship is love. The beauty of friendship is willingness. Now, you see Paul making, he's, he's not trying to compulse him. He's not trying to strong arm him. He could. He is an apostle, right? By the way, when you're in need, when you have a genuine need, physical, spiritual, whatever, Think of the people that you can go to and that you know won't, won't, uh, won't qualify the need. They won't think about it. They won't have to categorize it and see whether they should. Be. Think about people in your life that will just drop whatever they're doing and answer the need. That's probably going to be a friend. Now, Paul demonstrates real humility rather than showing off his authority in this. And if you didn't catch it, notice, notice how he described himself. He says, I'm a prisoner. And this is the only time he does this, and I'm an old man. He's only like 60 years old. That's not old, folks. Thank you. But he does make his appeal. It's a very gentle one. Again, in verses 8 and 9, he goes, I could command you, but rather I appeal. He says the word twice. It's the word parakaleo. It's a beautiful word. Para means to be beside. Kaleo, we get our word to call, to call out. And it literally means it's an entreaty. It means to entreat, to appeal, like the word, or to come alongside of somebody and make a gentle appeal. That's what Paul is doing. That's what you do to a friend. You don't command and demand and compulse friends, right? You appeal to them. And Paul's doing that because he understood the limits of his authority to some degree. I mean, slavery was an established institution, and, and Paul knew that he would have to walk wisely. He would have to walk circumspectly, carefully. 
and stay within his line, stay within his lanes if he was going to address this thing properly. Did anybody watch the Kentucky Derby last week? You see the guy who, the guy, guys don't win the Kentucky Derby. The horse that won lost. It was unprecedented. He lost because he strayed into the other lane. He got out of his own lane and, and blocked a couple of horses, so he got DQ'd. He got disqualified. Paul understood that he had to stay within his lane here because as an apostle, he had powerful spiritual authority, but he was treading on some real sensitive stuff here. It's still sensitive today when you think of slavery. And Over the last few years, uh, there have been a number of individuals in the evangelical world, even household names to many. Guy, everybody reading their treats, tweets, listening to their blogs, their sermons, who have gone kaput. Their house has come down. And they're either out of the ministry or they've been severely marginalized. And not because of what we've seen for generations where pastors and theologians and these, these guys that seem bigger than life, they oftentimes fall because of immorality. These guys I'm thinking of didn't fall because of immorality. They weren't sleeping around with other women. The reason they fell was because they abused their authority. They became power mongers. And I was thinking about this because I, I was just thinking about how I was so disgusted with one of them. And while I was thinking about how disgusted I was with one of them, it, it sort of hit me that I, I, and I even said this to a couple of pastors, I said, I, I think I could be just like him. And they said, yeah, you could. Paul wielded great authority as an apostle. The apostles, for all intents and purposes, ruled. They could walk into any and every church and just lay down the law, and they were expected to be complied with. But you don't do that to a friend, and Paul wasn't doing it to Philemon. And because he doesn't demand, he can appeal, and he appeals to his willingness. John Phillips, in his commentary exploring Philemon, points out that all of us, and you should write this down because I don't have it up here for you, all of us operate, all of us operate on, in three different ways, out of a sense of discipline, a sense of duty, or a sense of desire. We all operate out of a sense of discipline, duty, or desire. Discipline says, I have to. Duty says, I've got to. Desire says, I want to. And this is what Paul is appealing to. In fact, if you look at verse uh, 13 and 14, he says, I would have been glad to keep him, he's referring to Onesimus, in order that he could serve me on your behalf in my imprisonment for the gospel, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that, watch this, your goodness might not be by compulsion but by your own accord. I just think that's an interesting, I mean, it just hit me. What? The question that I... What goodness in Philemon is Paul referring to? I think he's referring to the goodness, the God-given goodness of Philemon's willingness to show Onesimus mercy and perhaps even set him free as a slave. 
or at the very least, let him come back and serve the Apostle Paul. Either way, Paul is not demanding, though he could have. And this, by the way, is a cliffhanger epistle. If you've been around at all, you know, several years ago, I did a summer series called The Cliffhangers of Christ. And we went into all these narratives where Jesus teaches us something powerful, and then just sort of leaves us hanging. And we wonder whatever happened. Like the prodigal son. Remember the elder? The elder brother, he's outside. The father's begging him to come in and rejoice with his younger brother, etc. And Boom, that's where their narrative ends. It just ends there. I mean, we're, it's like a cliffhanger. We're just left hanging. We got Jonah in the book of Jonah outside the city of Nineveh pouting like a little baby. And God's making an appeal to him. Come on, Jonah. I mean, look at all the people, all these little kids in there. Can't you care for them? We don't have any addendum. We don't know what Jonah did. There's no addendum to Philemon. Paul's making his appeal. Come on, you're willing. I know you could be willing. Won't you do it? Won't you have mercy on Onesimus? But we don't know if he did. We don't know if he took that hot iron, branded him, said forget it. We don't know. We're not told. We can kind of see what he did because in verse 21, Paul says, hey, look, I'm confident of the way you're going to act. But the reason God has these cliffhanger narratives and epistles is so that you and I will say, uh, I'm Philemon. What am I going to do here? How's this going to impact me as a friend? There's one more thing I want you to note in the in genuine friendship is the focus of friendship. And this I really want you to think on. The focus of friendship is the eternal bond we share, not the temporal chains we wear. Okay? When it comes to Christian friendships, the welding of Christian friendships, the focus should be on the eternal bond that we share, not the temporal chains that we wear. So, Paul has just said at the end of verse 15, he uses the word forever. And we didn't even read it, so I might as well read verse 15. For this perhaps is why he, Onesimus, has, has parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. And so in essence, Paul is letting Philemon know that Philemon shared the same eternal bond with Paul that Onesimus did. And verse 12, Paul refers to Onesimus as my very heart. Did you see that? I emphasize it in the reading. And this is interesting. The word heart is not the normal Greek word cardia. We get a word cardia, you know, you know, for the heart. But it's the word which means to yearn from the gut. It means your entire insides. I love him with everything, with every fiber of my being. That's the word he uses here. I had a, one of our senior saints tell me just yesterday, she whispered, she goes, I love everything about you, Pastor. I thought, you don't even know everything about me. But that was a nice thing to say, just the same. That's Paul's love for Philemon. Think about this. The slave to Philemon was the heart of Paul. Now, the point, again, is the focus of friendship is the eternal bond you share, not the temporal chains you wear. And I know some of you are wearing chains right now. Some of you are minorities. Some of you have a lower social status because of your socioeconomic abilities or lack thereof. 
You don't feel like you fit in. Some of you, you, whatever. Some of you have relational chains. You're divorced. Or you just haven't been able to find the one. Whatever chains you're wearing, you need to know that there's, the eternal bond that you have in Jesus trumps every chain in this world. Now, speaking of chains and slavery, I think I, I, got, I got a hit on this. Many wonder why Paul didn't take an opportunity to address the institution of slavery. I mean, if he was ever going to do it, this is, the, this is the time to deal with it, Paul. Deal with it once and for all. No more slavery. He kind of does, but not from a sociological perspective, he doesn't. N.T. Wright, uh, a theologian, uh, illustrates it by saying the world social system was operating in large part by the institution of slavery. I told you last week, Rome was built on slavery. And for Caesar to just outlaw all slavery all of the sudden would have been, he likened it to uh, outlawing all motor vehicles today of every kind. I mean, after all, you know, they harm the environment and the air we breathe. But imagine the disaster of every, no more cars, no more semis, no transportation of goods. It'd be a disaster. Well, let me say this. Listen carefully now. The Bible never calls us to attempt to overthrow political and social systems. Jesus is going to do that. When he returns, he is the rock of Daniel 2. He's going to come back and destroy all of the kingdoms. He's going to set up his kingdom, and of his kingdom, there will be no end. The government will be on his shoulders. All forms of injustice is put down. That's what we have in Christ to look forward to. So if the Bible doesn't call us to overthrow political systems, what does it call us to God calls his people, whether you're in the United States or in China, whether you're in Somalia or Great Britain, it doesn't matter. He calls all, all of his people to live within the system that they were born in and be fruitful, multiply, and preach the gospel. If possible, through the gospel, the system changes. Listen, change the majority of hearts and you'll change the majority of systems. Just stare at that for a minute, because that isn't just a theory, it's a fact. When you change the majority of hearts, you'll change the majority of systems. You look down the history, the annals of, of Christian histories, and whenever there's been a revival, and there hasn't been that many, but whenever revival occurs, when the Spirit of God comes sweeping in, the church gets right with God, souls are being saved, whole Economies change, politics change, morals change, cities change. Change the majority of hearts and you'll change the majority of systems. The Old Testament regulated the institution of slavery. It didn't abolish it. The New Testament placed clear guidelines on both the slave and the master to live in submission and love. In fact, remember, remember when, when Onesimus and Titich, whatever his name is, showed up. They didn't have just one, but they had two letters, Philemon and 
Remember that when you read this the next time you read this in Colossians. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing God. Whatever you do, work heartily as unto the Lord and not for men. Some of you have memorized this verse. Did you know that it was first written to slaves? It tells you right there. This was written to Onesimus. Knowing that from the Lord you receive the inheritance of your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he's done, and there is no partiality. And then to Philemon, masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Did you know the context of that before now? I'll stop with this. The book of Philemon is the ultimate apologetic against the social gospel, which is no gospel at all. Paul having an opportunity to address the institution of slavery and its injustices chooses not to. Why? Why? Because that was then and is now not God's purpose and plan for his children in this world. Think about this. The social gospel, again, which is no gospel at all, inverts God's plan to save the world by making, listen, by making personal and social justice the main thing. Listen, you don't need social righteousness now. You need God's righteousness forever, right? That's why he uses the word forever at the end of verse 15. Should we address injustices? Yes. Should Christians enter politics? Of course. Should Christian, Christians ignore the injustices around them? No, emphatically no. But remember this. We must always remember the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart, and it's the heart that must be changed. Has your heart been changed? I mean, seriously, has your heart been changed? Sometimes when the friction occurs between friends, it's just a relation, it's just, a, it's just the illustration, your heart's never really been changed. If the gospel has flooded your heart, then, then you see things differently. And yes, there'll be friction. Yes, it'll be tested. But you'll pass the test. Remember the illustration of the, the, the mountain goats? Uh, facing each other, facing off at each other, staring each other down. One lays down, the other walks over the top of it. They both go their own way. Just the other day, I had a, I'd been having some Bible studies with a couple who had seen somebody else in this church come to trust Jesus as Savior. They'd seen their baptisms on video. Through a series of circumstances, we started having some meetings, my wife and I with them. Just last Thursday, the wife under massive conviction, seeing that these are religious people, a part of a prominent church, but she saw how lost she was. She broke down, wept, humbled herself, laid down, and trusted Jesus as Savior. Just the other day. Her husband watched the whole thing unfold. Watched the whole thing unfold. He wasn't proud, but let me tell you something. This is a very smart guy. This guy has read huge volumes of outstanding reading material. You and I would say, yeah, great stuff. 
And he even had a story of some religious experience he'd had in 2012. I just accepted. I wasn't, I wasn't pushing back. I just listened to him. He texted me the very next morning after his wife was converted, which would have been Friday morning, just the other day. He said, I couldn't go to bed. I couldn't get to sleep till 1.30. I was up at 4.30 thinking about this, thinking about this, thinking about this. He goes, I've been reading the books, but I've never read page one. That's what he said. I've never read page one. He goes, I've never been reborn. I said, you want to meet for lunch? Yeah. We met for lunch. One of the local restaurants. Sat down. He laid it all out again in front of me. I said, what do you want to do about it? He goes, I want to be saved. Right there. He bowed his head. He laid down right there. Dozens of people all around him. Not physically. He just bowed his head. Cried out to the Lord. Admitted his sin. Admitted that he never really repented. He never really turned to Jesus. He trusted him right there in tears. He laid down and didn't let the truth walk over him. The truth walked into him and changed his life just like it'll change yours. If you've never trusted Jesus, you're the goat looking right at yourself. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? This church won't save you. Jesus won't save you. Jesus will save you. Your religion isn't going to save you. Trust Jesus. Lay down. Let the way, the truth, and the life walk into your heart and save you. Sound good? And then, and then understand what it means to be a genuine friend that passes the test of genuine friendship. I'll pray and we'll be done. Father, thank you so much for your love. Thank you for the gospel. And how it changes our hearts, it changes our lives, it changes everything. Changes relationships. And it might not change our social status. It might not change and probably won't change our economic status. It doesn't change our ethnicities. But it changes us from the inside out. And makes us one with one another. And makes it possible for us to behold you, our great God, and have deep friendships. I pray for those here, Lord, who've never laid down, having faced themselves and their own pride and their own sin, have never laid down and let the truth walk into them. If that's you, dear friend, let it be. Let it be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.